This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. West Virginia is known for its wealth of resources coal, natural gas, oil, timber. But before any of those became king, another industry boomed there during the 1800s. Salt. The heart of salt production lay in a small town on the Appalachians' western slope, where, believe it or not, an ocean once covered everything in sight. What happened here is so remarkable, so unusual, that it's a story that that just can't be lost for the ages. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a story about salt and one family reckoning with its past. Caleb Johnson brings us the story. You can see fog on the slopes of the Green Mountains beyond the Dickinson family farm outside Charleston, West Virginia, but the sun hangs high, which means it's a good day for salt making. Salt can be mined, or it can be evaporated from brine, which is what happens here using only the sun. Lewis Payne enters a long rectangular building that looks like a greenhouse, but inside stand raised wooden beds lined with black tarp and filled with salty water. Uh, The bed we're looking at here is probably ready to harvest because there's crystals on the entire length of it. Lewis is one of the owners of JQ Dickinson Salt Works in Malden. It's not yet 9 a.m. and already muggy here in what he calls the Sun House. He's out here with his sister and co-owner of the Salt Works, Nancy Bruns. They're the seventh generation in their family to do this kind of work. Nancy drags a cherry wood rake along the bottom of the bed. With clear skies, it takes at best five weeks for the brine to evaporate enough to harvest salt. As Nancy rakes, big crystals pile up where Lewis stands waiting. And so I've got a small scraper or paddle, and I'm paddling it into a large wooden scoop, the crystals, and then I'll let it drip off a bit, and then I'll scoop the the salt into the towel. Lewis ties the towel and hangs it on a metal hook. The bundle looks like what cartoon storks use to deliver babies. A train passes in the distance, but it's quiet in the J.Q. Dickinson Sun House, except for the sack of salt dripping dry. Maybe you've heard of harvesting salt from an ocean, but West Virginia is a landlocked state. So where exactly do Nancy and Lewis get the brine to fill their sun houses? Get this, the siblings say their brine comes from an ancient body of water trapped far below Malden. It's called the Iapetus Ocean. Turns out, it's every bit as mysterious as it sounds. You know, oceans are kind of slippery things. That's Charlie Jones. I'm a lecturer at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Geology and Planetary Science. I meet Charlie one evening in his fifth floor office. Every flat surface is covered with rocks, fossils, books about rocks and fossils, drill bits, and souvenirs from his fieldwork days. Nothing is labeled. It's like his office serves as an overflow space for the local Natural History Museum. Charlie pulls up a bunch of maps on a large computer monitor and starts going through them. Millions of years pass with every click. Tectonic plates shift continents around the globe, and as a result, oceans 
formed between the new land masses. So look at that. So here's, here's the Iapetus, here they call the Iapetus Ocean there. So there was a big supercontinent, a Gondwana, and North America was part of a smaller continent called Laurentia. And, uh, and the Iapetus then is whatever is between Laurentia and Gondwana. Charlie's describing a map of Earth 470 million years ago. Scientists named these continents and oceans after Greek gods and places in ancient legends, and Charlie clearly relishes saying them aloud. Aptus is really this little sliver in here, and Ariac is on the other side of this, this little sliver of land called Avalonia, you know, where King Arthur was put out to sea. <laughs> I guess he went there, I don't know. The Iapetus ocean teemed with life. Trilobites, sharks, and giant armored fish were among the many species. But on land, much less was going on. There weren't even any plants, just algae and fungi. As sea levels changed, the Iapetus sometimes washed over parts of what we now call North America, including where Malden, West Virginia now sits, more than 400 miles inland from the Atlantic Ocean. The water is a little bit deeper and surrounded by uh, all sorts of coral reefs. And the reefs made it hard for the uh, seawater to freely circulate, to wash in and out. Uh, and, and it turned out that these reefs were in uh, subtropical latitudes. And in the modern Earth, the subtropics are where you have the highest rates of evaporation, where the deserts are. And as the water evaporated, just like the brine in Nancy and Lewis's sunhouses, salt crystals were left behind. As more time passed, more ocean water washed in, and then that water evaporated too, leaving behind even more salt. Salt upon salt upon salt. Eventually, it was all covered up by sediment. And today, what's left of the Iapetus Ocean is a layer of salt buried deep underground. So it's the salts from the Iapetus Sea, but not the water from the Iapetus Sea. But Nancy and Lewis are pumping up something wet, right? Charlie says this brine is actually the result of groundwater percolating into the ancient layer of Iapetus ocean salt. This water dissolves the salt it touches, and eventually, somehow, from pressure gradients and other geologic mysteries, the salty water works its way back up through layer after layer of earth and into shallower sandstone. Some of the brine even makes it all the way to the surface. Hundreds of years ago, buffalo and other animals visited a boggy salt lick in the Kanawha Valley. Native Americans followed the animals there. White people followed them, and large-scale salt production began in the early 1800s and quickly ramped up. Malden would have been an industrial town. It was brawly. It was dangerous. Uh, it, I'm sure Saturday night was a, pretty, it was a pretty rough place. That's Larry Rowe, a local historian. He talks about people from the past as if you could still spot them walking Malden's sleepy main street. Larry says by 1817, when Nancy and Lewis's family drilled its first well using hollow tree trunks as piping, over 50 salt furnaces were already burning along the Kanawha River. The furnaces were fed wood and later coal to evaporate brine out of large iron kettles, leaving behind a rosy pink salt. Workers piled this salt on barges headed to Cincinnati, a major port hub back then. You can guess 50, over 50 salt furnaces uh, using a fuel source uh, every day, uh, that the, the air would have been really, really bad here. The work was fairly dangerous, uh, and when we compare slavery, agricultural slavery in eastern Virginia, uh, it, it, it would have been much better work. Historians debate this last point. The density of Malden at the time certainly made for a different kind of slavery, though the inhumane foundation was the same. The Kanawha Valley salt industry was built on the backs of thousands of slaves, some of them leased from farms across state lines. 
Salt production peaked in 1846. Five years later, the Dickinson's Kanawha Salt was deemed best salt in the world at the World's Fair in London. The Dickinson's counted 500 workers, including slaves, and produced 8,000 pounds of salt per day. For some context on scale, Nancy and Lewis hoped to produce that much salt this year. By the Civil War, the furnaces were, were really very large factory-looking buildings. But booms are always followed by busts. The Kanawha Valley salt makers produced too much salt and prices fell. New railroad lines also made it easier to get salt from other places. One by one, furnaces in the Kanawha Valley went dark. By the second half of the 1800s, the Dickinson Salt Works were one of the last left operating. They made salt until 1945, and when they finally stopped, that was it for salt in the Kanawha Valley. Malden now is a, is a pastoral village. It's a, it's a wonderful place to live and raise kids. Growing up in this area, Nancy and Lewis weren't aware of their family's role in the Kanawha Valley salt industry. Other family-owned ventures, a bank, leasing land for coal mining and natural gas extraction, overshadowed the story of salt. It wasn't until a few years ago when Nancy's husband Carter started a master's program in American history. He came across some familiar names in his research, and Nancy got curious. I started seeing our family in a very different way. I, did, I knew we made salt, I just didn't know the extent of the history of it. History grabbed Nancy and wouldn't let her go. She and Carter were living in North Carolina at the time, where they'd owned a restaurant for a decade and just recently sold it. She was wondering what was next. Meanwhile, Carter's research led him from the Revolutionary War in the Northeast all the way down to the Kanawha Valley. The common thread? Salt. I one day asked Carter if the family stopped making salt because there was no more brine, and he said, no, no, there's plenty of brine. So then there was the aha moment of, well, we need to be making salt again. Coming up, what Nancy and Lewis find when they decide to start making salt again, and how they're trying to transform an industry that once depended on coal to one that runs on nothing but the sun. That's ahead. Hi, it's Melissa, and if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! There is the donor music. And like Dickinson Saltworks, Lodge Manufacturing is a family-owned business. They're also based near the Appalachian Mountains in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. Lodge has been sandcasting iron cookware since 1896, well over 100 years. Lodge cast iron skillets are perfect for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their enamel-covered casserole dish works for a home cook's souffle. And Lodge's seasoned steel cookware is widely used in professional kitchens. No matter what or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles just for you. And here's a bit of trivia. 
If you're a bit of a treasure hunter, as I am, you might check antique stores out for the elusive Lodge Garden Gnome. They used to manufacture those, too. Now, back to Caleb Johnson and J.Q. Dickinson Saltworks. After Nancy learned that there was still brine beneath the Kanawha Valley in West Virginia, she called her brother Lewis. He was managing some of the family's natural resource assets at the time and had been toying with other food-related business ventures. And this idea sounded like a good one to him. The siblings poured over old Dickinson Saltworks survey maps, consulted an engineering firm, and eventually they drilled into the earth almost exactly where one of their ancestors' nine wells once operated. The driller we were using is used to drilling for fresh water, so when he hit fresh water he thought his job was done, but it was just getting started, so I don't think he had done this very often. The process took two weeks instead of the typical three or four days. We went through at least two drill bits that I know of. The sandstone tends to get pretty hard through this area. We kept tasting the water to see if it was salty and see if it was salty. Finally, the drill struck brine around 300 feet. I remember specifically when they hit the salt water and there was this huge plume. It's like striking oil or something and we put our cups under the water to taste it and it was salty. We were, I remember just feeling a sigh of relief. Okay, we, we got it. Today, Nancy says their well is the only one used in making edible salt in the Kanawha Valley. But installing a working well turned out to be the easy part. We knew we could make salt if we got salty water, because just by the sheer nature of it. But we didn't know what that salt would taste like. And we knew, Stein knew in my mind, that modern palates are very different than they were in the 19th century. And there were some other moments where we tasted it. It's like, oh gosh, that is just not that good. Or I'd try and do some experiments at home and the kids would taste it. And like, oh gosh, that's disgusting, Mom. You're, this is never going to work. Nancy and Lewis knew there were trace minerals in the brine affecting the salt's flavor. They experimented with different ways of refining the salt. For example, they let the brine set in a tank longer so the iron would fall out. It was a learning process. Well, I can remember it so vividly that taste when we got it right and it just I mean it just gave me chills thinking about it. It's like wow that is so good and you just don't think about a salt being just overwhelmingly good but when you tasted a zillion of them and then you get this one flavor and you're like oh my gosh wow we've really got a product here. Lewis leads me into a room where the salt is eventually sifted, cleaned, packaged, and mailed to a growing list of restaurants and homes. I wanted to have a taste of it for myself. He warms up some caramel Nancy made to cut the salt with a little sweet. I need to let that cool for a minute. Lewis sprinkles on some finishing salt and then hands me a miniature popsicle stick with a dollop of caramel stuck on the end. The big crystals cause the salt to linger on my tongue longer than I'm used to. But there's no bitterness, no burn. It's almost refreshing. I'm gonna try one more. So good. <laughs> Before going to market, Nancy and Lewis asked several chefs to taste their salt. One of them was Sean Brock. Sean is from rural Virginia. He's known for highlighting southern ingredients in his restaurants in Charleston, South Carolina, and Nashville. He now uses J.Q. Dickinson salt in all his kitchens. I gave him a call. Sean was in Atlanta cooking a dinner to benefit farmers and getting the word out about a restaurant he's opening there. Hello. 
Hey, Sean, it's Caleb Johnson. How you doing, man? Sean said he had a hard time finding salt made in the South that also tasted the way he wanted. For a time, he even made salt in-house, using brine a fisherman brought in from off the coast of Charleston. But that stopped when he tasted the stuff Nancy and Lewis sent him. Once I tasted that salt and heard the story, I immediately called and asked if I could buy everything. And uh, I actually wasn't joking. <laughs> I called and said, how, how much salt can you guys produce and how much can I buy? Like, I was, I was like, I want truckloads of it. <laughs> Sean says he loved how clean the salt tasted, but it wasn't just the taste. Sean sees J.Q. Dickens and Salt as part of a reawakening in Southern food. I think the South is going through an incredible phase right now where the, the cuisine and the culture is, is, is really sort of being reborn again. Um, this stuff has always existed. We just kind of forgot about it for a little while. And now we're all starting to realize um, that we have it all. We have everything. We have, we have everything we could ask for. And that makes being a cook so much easier. Uh, and it makes being, being a diner and a consumer so much more fun. Back in Malden, history presses up against itself like the geologic layers stacked underfoot. Down by the river, coal barges float past the rambling white house where some Dickinson cousins live part-time. Within a rock's throw, Lewis points out a crumbling tower he says is part of the original Saltworks boiler system. As far as I can tell, this is one of the last standing signs of the industry in general. Even standing in front of this relic, it's difficult imagining the pastures where cows now graze and the shady riverbank were once a sprawling industrial site. Nancy and Lewis have started cleaning up around the boiler and the accompanying railroad tracks leading to nowhere. They placed historical markers elsewhere on the property too, but most of their preservation efforts have been focused on the old family offices, a white wooden building near some barns set along a two-track road that splits vegetable gardens and pastures. The offices date to near the turn of the previous century. They were semi-active until the 1980s, but at first glance, you might wonder if the place has been locked up for a hundred years. A photo of John Q. Dickinson hangs on the wall. He's the namesake of the company and Nancy and Lewis's great-great-grandfather. On another wall, you'll see a blue map that's got the old well logs on it that helped us determine where and how deep we should be drilling. Ledgers from the 1800s lie open on a slanted wooden desk. Looks like they're buying supplies here, so they're coffee for $35 and molasses for $50. Pepper, sugar. A lot of these things they were buying to store in the company store where the workers would come and buy things. A stencil that reads, Soul Makers of Kanawha Salt, stands on a shelf. It was once used to mark wooden barrels. Next to the stencil stand five tea-colored bottles with Kanawha Salt still in them. This one uh, says, Sunday Salt, it says, Extra Coarse made for Butcher's Hide Association. It takes bottles like these to see where somebody has handwritten on a label. You know, that's really how it comes to, to your mind's eye. It's reassuring in some ways, um, just the connection to history and family. And it's, uh, it's fascinating just to see it. It's almost, you almost don't believe it. Seeing and touching these artifacts in such a serene setting it's easy to get caught up and forget just how destructive industry was here. The air in Malden was once black with smoke, and many saltworks used the river as a dump. 
and drilling for salt brine gave way to coal and natural gas operations in the region, which meant new jobs, but also meant more pollution. The Dickinson family expanded into these businesses too, and still leases out land for coal and natural gas extraction. This has been a boon for the family over the years, but the environmental impact doesn't always set easy with Nancy. It is a bit of a conflict in my mind. We're playing both sides of the coin a bit, I would say. You know, I haven't um, cut myself off from my family for doing that, and I don't plan on it. It's it's something that I think is, um, you know, important for the state as well as, you know, for the country moving forward. We still rely on these, on these uh, resources and have relied on them for many years and it really built the built this country so um you know it's something that that I wrestle with a bit but you know I think that's also a a healthy thing to be aware of you know choices that are in my control and um you know what my ancestors done in the past and that awareness led Nancy and Lewis to do things differently for one their operation is much smaller than the Kanawha salt works of the 1800s their salt-making process depends solely on the sun's energy instead of burning coal and timber. That might mean fewer jobs, for now three paid positions not counting Nancy and Lewis, but it also means less impact on the environment. We definitely think of our salt as a product of Mother Nature, something that comes from the crown, that the sun and breezes are bringing it to fruition, and when it's ripe, in quotes there, then we harvest it. Our salt gives you that expression of the West Virginia earth here in the Appalachian Mountains. This may sound like a break from how the Dickinson family used to do things, but Nancy says keeping the land productive for future generations has always been a family value, even if that might seem like a contradiction. Nancy and Lewis both have kids who already take an interest in this revived family business. Meanwhile, the region is reaching a kind of crossroads. West Virginia is in a huge transition right now because of the depression of the, the coal industry. And so what, what's going to happen in this state? And so while we're, we're having very little impact, it's just we're just one very small example of what, what can happen. Nobody can say what Malden will look like 10, 20, 100 years from now. But if there are any Dickinson descendants still around, it's a good bet they'll still be making salt. Caleb Johnson is a writer based in Pittsburgh. He produced this story with Irina Zhurov, a writer and reporter who also lives in Pittsburgh. Music for this episode was from Hell for Certain String Band, Blue Dot Sessions, and David Schulman and the Quiet Life Motel. Thanks to Sarah Camp Milam and Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy, but first... The Southern Foodways Alliance would like to thank you for listening to our Gravy podcast. And if you haven't already, subscribe so that you'll never miss an episode. At southernfoodways.org, you can do that with just one click. You can also do a lot of other things when you visit the SFA website. Browse the audio archive to hear voices from Charleston, South Carolina... Watch a short film about hot chicken in Nashville. Read the blog, which is updated every day for news. You can also become a member online. Dues-paying members make SFA projects, including this podcast, possible. Join us and support sharing more stories behind the food. That's at southernfoodways.org.
Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a surprising source of innovation for food sold in the South and beyond. On the jambalaya, for instance, trying to make sure that jambalaya would, would last for three years at 80 degrees in a pouch is a challenge. A story that will make your next grocery shopping trip way more interesting. I promise. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.